This is episode 200 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing Men's Roundup 2017 with John Lynch. This is session two from Saturday morning. It is wonderful to be back with you. You sure I'm on? All right, good enough. Hey, what I said, someone came up to me. By the way, I'm fashion modeling merch. Um, I look really good in this. Uh, at least I feel good in it. So um, there you go. All weekend long. If you've got a shirt for me to wear, I'll wear it. Hey, I was talking to someone, and they said, how long did it take before that day happened with Stacy? And I thought about it, and I said 15 years. I was wrong. It was like 23 years. 23 years before I trusted my wife. I love, by the way, having Jason Gray do worship for my message. I feel like, I feel like if I could have... And that's the most important thing I want to say. I have no music stand. I need a music stand for the love of a kingdom. Please, music stand. Thank you. Um, Anyways, Jason, gosh, that rarely happens. So often I'll be at a camp and the worship people will be singing the opposite of what I'm trying to teach out of the word of God. And I just, I go, really? Uh, So to hear Jason, I just went, where have you been all my life? Golly. Anyways, he's talking about the curse, and he's right. So many of us men think our job is to provide and be strong and don't let our guard down and let our wives. Somehow we think that's how we will love them, and all the time we feel like we're not doing it right or doing enough. And all the while, our wives are saying, would you let yourself be known and let me love you? Let me protect that little boy. I know you. What's so crazy? They can see us better than we can see ourselves. They know us. My wife is a mess. She makes me so mad and hurts me so much. But she loves me so stinking much. And she sees me more clearly than I see me. The saddest women in the world, married women in the world, are those who don't get to love their husbands because their husbands won't let them. Oh, my brothers, the greatest gift you could give to your wife would be to go home and say, I think you see me, and I want to learn to trust your voice. I want to learn to let you protect me. And she will say, who are you and where is my husband? All right, listen, we're going to go through, in these next three sessions, we're going to go through Solomon. If I had three sections in Ecclesiastes, which I cannot think of a better book anywhere in Scripture for men, these are the three passages that I would hit. Solomon, he kind of goes all the way with the question, what would it be that if you had it, that your life would finally work? What would it be that if you had it, 
your life would finally work. And Solomon says, whatever that is, I want you to know I've already been there and I checked it out and you can save your Uber fare. So these are hard. Today is a hard message to give because um, I see myself. You will see yourself. Um, go ahead and put that first slide right, right up, if you will. In 965, Solomon wrote the Song of Solomon. Beautiful. The woman that he describes in there is psycho woman. She is the weirdest described woman ever. Uh, breasts of a fawn. I don't want that. Uh, there's never been a time in my life where I thought, no, that's attractive. Um, <laughs> Anyways, very innocent time for him. And then in 950, 15 years later, Solomon writes Proverbs. Most intensely, profoundly wise book. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understandings. All your ways acknowledge him. He'll direct your paths. Trust in God. He knows it. He gets it. And then something happens. Nobody knows what happened in those next 15 years, but something happened in Solomon. He's the head of the kingdom. He's already prayed to God, I want wisdom for your people. And God says, I'm not going to give you wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth beyond your wildest dreams. And so at first, Solomon uses it so beautifully to protect the kingdom. And then something happens. He gets disappointed. He gets disillusioned with God. And it changes. It all changes for him. And somewhere in between that time, Solomon goes on a journey without leaving home. And he comes back, never the same man again. This is a hard thing to watch, but then he writes accurately recording for us madness, searching, hunger, thirst, broken-hearted disappointment, and at moments in time, he sees the truth. So 935, he's, he writes Ecclesiastes. The, the things to look at when you're reading this book, give me the next slide if you would, he says words like, under the sun, I am now going to see what this life can give me, forget heaven, God, just, I'm going to put you on the shelf for a little bit. I'm tired of what you've done. I'm disappointed with you. You've let me down. You haven't paid off. So now I'm going to look around on this, this earth, and I'm going to see what possibly is there that if I had it, it would make my life work finally. I'm the richest man in the world. I've got everything. And he says, you'll see it over and over again. I, I said to myself, he becomes a self-referencing system. Everybody's out. You're going to see his home is filled every night. The palace, you, you, the, the amount of food that he had to have it, from those verses fed tens of thousands of people a night. Every night was a party in the palace. But no one knew Solomon. And so he says, I said to myself, and then I tested everything with wisdom. I had all this wisdom. I had all the resource. I had all the time. We were a nation, not at war. I was making 325 million a year in a non-inflated economy. 
So this man gets to answer that question that every man here has. What is it that if I had it, my life would finally work? And Solomon says, I left no stone unturned. You know, wisdom all my life, I thought, that's what I wanted. I've I've been in a culture where wisdom is utterly esteemed. This next slide, if you put it up uh, after that slide, I'm realizing wisdom, Solomon never lost his wisdom, but he got sick and it got twisted. And I realized passion without wisdom just makes one loudly foolish. Wisdom without love makes one judgmental. Wisdom without humility makes one self-reliant. Wisdom without trusting God makes one cynical and despairing. You'll hear it throughout the book, his cynicism and despair and wisdom without trusting God. Uh, it, It can give right assessment, but it gives lousy conclusions. Next slide. Wisdom can only be wise in what it trusts. Wisdom without trust allows for an accurate description, but a grossly inaccurate conclusion. Um, It's an interesting thing about pleasure. That's going to be his search today. I said to myself, chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, come now, I'm going to test you with pleasure. There's a problem with pleasure, and we'll talk about it even more next session. Pleasure diminishes and eludes in direct proportion to how much it's pursued. To be able to enjoy pleasure is a byproduct of an entirely different sort of pursuit. I'm going to read something to you. It uh, it was a time when I learned this very truth early on, 1964, and on my worst day. Few foods captivated me in youth like cheesecake. Boy, howdy. I was always left frustrated, wanting more than I was allowed in any given setting. My my parents never allowed it into our home, treating cheesecake like it was a luxury that only the royalty should possess, like caviar or gold leaf chocolate dishes. On rare occasions, Dad did take us to a restaurant that might carry cheesecake. He'd always made sure he pointed out the ridiculously high price of desserts. Reading the menu, he'd grumble under his breath, these desserts cost about what I make in a day's work. What sort of people would order such a thing? But on my birthday last year, he took us to the magic lamp, the magic freaking lamp, the nicest restaurant in Upland. It had white linen tablecloths and breadsticks in a basket covered with a matching linen napkin. My dad allowed it, he allowed me to order the dessert. When it finally arrived, it was so incredibly thin and tiny. <laughs> a sliver of cheesecake nearly lost on the dessert plate. The waiter could have served it with tweezers. I'm thinking, I could down about 19 of these. When I asked if I could have a second piece, my dad looked at me as though he might give his speech about people starving in the Congo. All of this might help explain to you why this summer day in 19, 
if you could turn that down just a touch, it's kind of kicking back on me. All of this um, is to help explain to you why this summer day in 64 turned out the way it did. I was peddling my blue stingray into downtown Upland to watch a matinee at the Grove Theater. I didn't make it that far. Turning off Euclid into 9th Street, I was physically pulled by what smelled like freshly baked cheesecake. The aroma came from the Upland Bakery. I, 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 I was suddenly positioned in front of the glass store window in time to watch an oversized man in a white baker's uniform slide a majestic freshly baked cheesecake from an oven with an, with an immense wooden paddle. <clears throat> I am often accurately accused of runaway hyperbole, but none of what I am about to write bears the marks of such device. I walked into the store and up to the glass counter on whose rack the case had now only been placed and pointing to it while making eye contact with a woman behind the counter, I said, how much for this? How much does it cost? She asked, per slice? No, the entire cheesecake. <laughs> how much? She quoted a nearly impossible amount, but I would find a way to purchase this all I would. The thought that I could for once have all the cheesecake I wanted had suddenly become the most single important goal for this day in my life. I spoke out clearly and slowly. Would you please not let anyone else buy this? I'm going to go home and find money. Will you promise me? And I was off on my bicycle. Mom, mom was not home. I had 85 cents already on me for the movie and snacks. I dug through my dad's change cup in his dresser. I scoured every room of the house. I probably rounded up a dollar's worth of coins, still pitifully short of the amount to own that cake. Then I remembered my Indian head nickel collection. A child of the Depression, my dad now had many collections, perhaps as a hedge against impending poverty. He wanted me to have a similar passion, so he had purchased a fleet of those heavy cardboard blue booklets with slots for the Indian head nickels. A slot for every year they were minted. Dad helped me get started with some fairly rare coins. I soon got into it. In the last year, I'd filled many of the slots. Somehow able to ignore perspective, consequence, and future regret, I bent back the cardboard booklets and popped out coins until I had over $5 worth of nickels in the pockets of my jeans. I got back on my stingray and I raced to the bakery. There I proceeded to pour out piles of nickels onto that counter. I walked out with an entire cheesecake in a box. I should have taken the cake home and shared it with my family. I did not do that. I should have located a plastic fork and a knife and eaten it in a local park. I did not do that. I should have at least sat down. I did not do that. 
I walked into the alley behind their store like a child raised by wolverines. <laughs> I began breaking off huge chunks of warm, fresh cheesecake and shoving them into my mouth. I tasted so incredibly good for almost minutes. To my credit, I was over, over halfway through the giant cake before it became oppressive. I was now slowly and reluctantly wadding it into my mouth. I started feeling sick two-thirds of the way through, and I tossed the rest in the dumpster several feet away. I wandered around to the front, a boy dazed by sugar and disappointment. What just happened? I thought as I stared at the road, slowly weaving my back, my bike through the neighborhoods towards home, when am I going to tell Dad about the nickels? Someday he's going to see how the collection's going. Why did I do that? What is wrong? What's wrong with me? But later that evening, an even deeper question worked its way to the surface. Why didn't that work today? Why didn't that cheesecake make me happier? I, didn't think, uh, I don't think either of my parents ever heard this story. I can't remember how I explained the missing nickels, but I walked forward from that day on a more urgent mission to find what food, entertainment, activity, or repetition of activity would satisfy me long enough to satisfy this unmet urge in me. And as I write in this book, I always imagine what God is saying to me, this little boy, during that time, even though I couldn't hear him yet. He might have said this. John, I don't want to rub this in, but if you'd held onto those Indian head nickels, you could buy everyone in Upland a cheesecake <laughs> once a month for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Trying to solve this internal craving will be the singular driving force for decades of your life. It will harm you more than any person can. It'll break your heart. One day, no time soon, you'll find what your longing and unmet urges are calling for. And then you will begin to learn what gives food its maximum taste, experiences their full measure of joy, and sunsets their full beauty. I'm right here, kid. And though you're going to go some really odd, strange places this obsession will not destroy you. One day, your willingness to articulate your battle with it will make you safe and real and trusted to others. You will get to tell this story to others. Until that time, you will crave the jack-in-the-box taco combo like few things on earth. <laughs> I'd say you could do worse, but I'm not sure I'd be accurate. So, imagine a long row of doors now, and Solomon is going to go one after the other and try them with all of his heart, and he's going to write to us about it. A long row of doors. Come on! This one has to pay off. I'm the wisest, richest man in the world. I've got everything at my disposal. I've got slaves and servants. I've got workers. I've got anything I want at any time. And he says, God, you've been holding out on me, man. 
I'm tired of being needy and dependent on you. You don't give me what I want the way I want. When I want, you're way too much work. You're always teaching me something that I don't want to have to learn. And I'm tired of being tired of waiting. I'm missing out. There's something out there that I need. And you don't play fair. Others, it seems like they're having a better life than me. And I've got access to everything. So enough of playing the religious man. Religion ties my hands, man. I'm wealthy and I'm successful. I play by a different set of rules. I'm going to take what you give me. And I used to use it to give it away, but no, not any longer. I am going to take it for me. I'm going to use it to find out what will make me happy and fulfilled. And so the first door he goes down is pleasure. I said to myself, come on now. I'm going to test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Do everything you can to let pleasure do it for you. It's the enjoyable sensations that come from the gratification of personal desires. When you take that to the philosophy of life, it's hedonism, isn't it? The pursuit of pleasure, of sensual self-delight. He breaks it into two categories. Laughter and other pleasures. And he says, laughter. I said of laughter, it's madness. See, laughter is incredible. We were just talking about it as the most holy, beautiful expression to God. But laughter, as an attempt to make life entertaining enough, it's hollow. Later on, Solomon will write about Ecclesiastes. He says, the laughter of fools is like the crackling of thorns under the pot. I remember back early on, I was known as the funny guy. I'd go up to Flagstaff and the, I'd come into a party and go, there's the guy, there's the funny guy. He does the radio dial thing where he does the different voices up the dial and come on, hey, do your thing. And, and I was the hit of the party. I was it. And then I would come back uh, uh, to a, the next party and some of the people would be, hey, hey funny guy, do that radio dial thing. And I wasn't as funny because they heard my bit. They just wanted to get entertained by funny guy. And the third time at a party is I, yeah, whatever, we've, we've heard it. It's madness, he says. It's just crazy if it's not in the context of love and friendships and protection. He says, pleasure, what does it accomplish? Pleasure pursue, pursued pleasure, it only masks my reality by misusing my senses. These beautiful senses. See, many of us repeat a cycle of lining up potentially pleasing events that we select by them by refining our preferences over time and then shaping our lifestyles to experience more and more of those sensations we can intently hunt out pleasure rather than resting in a God-trusting life to provide the pleasure. See, the first one doesn't work, and we are shocked and disappointed as the payoff decreases over time. We mistakenly conclude it must have to do with the insufficiency of the object of pleasure, and so we trade our interest to another object of pleasure and after a while, our senses and tastes get jaded, now unable to 
easily enjoy pleasure when it's given as a gift. Pleasure is best experienced by those who are not demanding it, who do not set the terms. It is astounding how little it takes for them to experience deep and satisfying pleasure. So he says, I tried it, you guys. Behold, it was futility. Got it. So the first door he walks over and says, you were supposed to be it. Dang it. Okay, okay, come on, come on. Hey, 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 hey. So second door he tries. Verse three. I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and taking hold and how to take hold of folly. So I started, he was like a vinter. He was taking different wines. Can you imagine him? He had the access to the most expensive grapes and wines and he started, okay, if, what, what if I do this? What if I could take one that wouldn't make me quite so drunk but I, I would have more time to, okay, I'll, let me try a more tart one. I gotta get a bold flavor, but I gotta. And one day he's sitting and passing out in his room going, this is just dead. Middle of the afternoon, I'm just trashed, and it didn't even taste that great. Don't talk to me about wine being right or wrong. I don't care. This is about drinking to fill that which you feel is missing in your life. That's what Solomon was doing. Third door. Accomplishments. All right. Okay, that was a little self-centered. So what if I do things? What if I do things that are good for the community? What if I build parks and aqueducts and irrigation? And, and what if I really now get accomplishments? So he says, I enlarged my works, verse 4. I built homes for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I, I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself with which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. His own house took 14 years to build, the temple seven. Listen to what he says in, in 2 Chronicles 9.27. The king made silver as common as the stones in Jerusalem, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. And people from all over were watching his accomplishments, and for a while, Solomon said, yes, this is me. No, you stay over there, God. This is Solomon, and I did this by myself, and it's great. And why am I not happy? <sighs> okay, I'm gonna get rich, as rich as I can. I'm already rich, but I'm gonna get even more money. Listen to what he says, verse eight. I collected for myself silver and gold in the treasure of kings and provinces. I got so wealthy 
And I didn't know what to do with it. I'd run out of things to do with it. Everybody would applaud. Solomon's the richest guy in the world. I'm still not happy. I can't even open my door. <laughs> my kingdom for a carpenter. You know what it is? I have 700 wives and 300 concubines. Now just stop for a second. They say Solomon is the wisest man in the world. I say nay. <laughs> I have one wife. <laughs> but he kept accumulating more and more beautiful. And now it gets perverse. Verse 8 says... Um, I collected for myself silver and gold, and then I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men. Three hundred concubines, and then men. Solomon's he was a man's man. I don't think this was about heterosexuality or homosexuality. I think he was just using humans to find what distorted sexual act could bring him pleasure. And after an evening or a couple of weird, bizarre, twisted nights at the palace that didn't pay off, That's it. I will consolidate power. I will be the greatest and everyone will call it out and say that I'm the greatest. And on a smaller scale, we know what this looks like. Conquest and stealing and winning a bid and trashing it out. Somehow having people to say, that guy right over there, that, that cat right there, he's the man. I watched the show Suits. I don't know if you ever watched that, but it's incredible to watch the power, the power play. And so Solomon in 2.7 says, I tried so hard, I became great in verse 9. And I increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Like, for example, my dad, David. And then fame. Verse 9. I became great. Uh, now he's in my territory. Now he's in John Lynch's territory. I thought being great was it. I thought being famous would be it. I love what Steve Martin says. I used, to, uh, I used to want to be more famous than I used to want to be less famous. Now I'm just right famous. Um, I loved, I love, I have to tell you, I loved fame for what it could do. I just thought 
And in some sectors, some little two block areas, I'm a big deal. <laughs> and can I tell you something? It's not enough. It's never enough. You guys, you guys might have a great weekend, but you'll go home and you'll forget my name. It's not enough. There has to be something more than that. So Solomon slams the door on that statement. And one day in verse 11, I considered the activities that my hands had done and the labor that I had exerted. And behold, one day Solomon's reclining in a lush spring-fed garden in one of his many parks. He's holding a glass of perfectly aged red wine from the best of his vineyards. He's lounging in a robe of silk and linen on a perfectly contoured couch made of cedar goose down. The gift of a foreign king, he is underneath a rare Egyptian tree, the result of grafting one with another to give not only wonderful shade, but a perfectly blended aroma of sage and mint. The greatest singers and musicians in the world are in the background playing his favorite music. The weather is perfect. His, he has his favorite concubine nearby, and she is stunningly beautiful. Servants are bringing the best wine and cheeses, Next to him sits a bowl of perfectly ripened fruit from nearby trees that he has planted. Others carry scented towels to cool his neck while leaders stand by, ready to appraise him of recent conquests, financial upturns, and state of the economy. World leaders are finagling outside the gate to gain audience with him. Close to him are the funniest people in the kingdom, tossing out wit and great eloquence. And all Solomon can think in this moment is this. Gosh, what I'd give to be somewhere else, alone, where I could contemplate how my life got so messed up and tediously painful. I considered all of it, and it was vanity. It was striving after the wind. There was no profit under the sun. The term striving after the wind literally means that there's a real object, but once you go for it and grab it, it disappears, it dissolves. And so his conclusion is so painful to read. 2.17, he says, uh, so I hated my life. Gosh, it's so hard for the person who finally gets there and tastes that, it, tastes that it's not enough. They are the saddest of all. I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me. Everything is futility and striving after wind. So I hated the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. I've got to leave it to some man who's going to come after me and who knows whether he'll be wise man or a fool. So I completely despaired of the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. <sighs> Solomon has made the critical mistake, this next slide, of taking what was given to him by God for the benefit of others and attempting to pleasurize himself with it. Next slide. When, whatever gifts you've been given, I'm sorry, I'm too early on that one. Whatever gifts you've been given, 
were never for your accomplishing, your fulfillment, or actualization. They're to be given away. And when you give them away, here's the sweet surprise. It fulfills you. No gift you have was ever intended to be used on yourself. It had to be used to be given away. And when you give it away, that's when it fulfills itself. That's when life becomes beautiful. And so our vision as men, our beautiful vision has to be to help others discover what they are freed from and also to help them discover the wonder that they've been freed into. So I get to start I get to stop and say, Solomon, if you've been there, if you have gone down every place and slammed every door, then why am I playing this game? Oh God, I'm done. Fame isn't enough. Nothing is enough without you doing it. We'll see in the, in the next session, nothing, enjoyment is a gift from your hand. And if that's true, that I start to get to ask better questions. And this weekend, I get to start asking the beautiful questions where I'm no longer fighting to prove that I'm enough or hiding from the things I fear will confirm that I'm not enough. Instead, God says, John, I'm crazy about you. I wanted there to be a John Lynch on this planet at this time, and I think you are it. And when I show some of your stuff to the angels, I got to tell you, they like it very much. And so I start to get to, I get to ask these questions. Next slide. God, who do I get to love? God, who has been waiting to love me well, like my wife? God, how can I receive your love wildly and endlessly? God, how do I best get to love those who don't know you yet? How do I get to win their hearts by them seeing the winsomeness and safety and freedom and non-striving of my life? God, what dreams and destiny are you forming in my heart? What what? things do you have for this man to do? I'm not done yet. God, who could I stand together with in a vision from you? God, who can help me mature into my destiny? I'm young and I'm full of passion, but I don't know how to harness this thing into something that could be used. And God, who can I help mature into their destiny? Who around me, as I look around, can I protect? God, what brings my heart great joy? And God, what do we do best together, you and I? And God, thank you. That's what free men get to do. So let me tell you, Jesus makes this astonishing statement in scripture and you can question his taste, just don't question his character. He says, to the exact extent 
If you're not going to run after the world, John, if you finally figured that out, then let me tell you some truth that will be worth living for. To the exact extent that my Father loves me, Jesus says this. And I'm thinking that's some pretty significant love. To the exact extent that my Father loves me, so also I love you, Jesus says. And you. And you. Oh, and you. To the exact extent that my Father loves me. And I know you are thinking, no, 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 don't, please do not point at me. I know what I've done. I'm not that guy. If you knew what I'd done... So you have to take it. This is what grace does. You have to believe what you don't deserve. If you say you want to love me to the exact extent that your father loves you, I don't get it. Why? You know what I've done. You see me, you see inside them. <gasps> okay. Okay. I trust you. And so he says, here's who you are. I'm Christ in John Lynch. On me worst day. That's who I am. And he says, now you're talking, now you're trusting me. I wear a robe of righteousness in me worst day. And he says, now you're talking, kid. Yeah, but what about all the things that I've done wrong? And he goes, yeah, but what about my shed blood? How powerful is the shed blood? Was it just to get you to heaven? Or was it to cover every single thing that you have done wrong and will do wrong and are doing wrong. How powerful is the shed blood of Jesus Christ? To the exact father degree that my father loves me. All right, here we go. So, so I love you. And you. And you. Not so much this section. <laughs> And so here it is in scripture, all the way back in Ecclesiastes, I get a picture of one man who has it all, who tries it all, and he comes back broken and bruised and devastated. And he says, guys, I don't know what you know yet. You're going to have a new heart. But I got to tell you, there was nothing there. It was never enough. None of it. But this thing, Jesus saying, John Lynch, you're more than enough. I'm delighted with you. I'm proud of you. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not disgusted with you. I enjoy you. I not only love you, I like you. 
I mean, really like you. Yes, I created humor, and yes, I gave you your humor, but that was funny. All of you cats, you are only here because he wanted you on this planet at this time because he delighted in you so much. Raise your hand if you've had trouble trusting that love, even as a Christian. Raise your hand. Oh, beautiful. Put it down for a second. My gosh, you guys, thank you for your honesty. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ actually wants you to believe that to the exact extent his father loves him, so he also he loves you? Raise your hand. Now one more. Realizing all the things that I've done wrong and all the things that I'm doing wrong and all the things that I will do wrong, do I believe that the shed blood of Jesus Christ is more powerful than all of my sin? Raise your hand. Amen. Now put it down. I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Today, will you dare risk that that shed blood is enough for you and all the things that you're in the midst of, will you dare risk right now to trust him that to the exact degree that the Father loves me, so also I love you, Jesus says. Raise your hand if you will dare believe it for you. You sacred men of God. This is a sacred moment. He will not forget this. And when I grab it, I go back to my cabin, I go back to my tent. <laughs> How can it be? I trust you that it's true. Okay. Then if that's true, it changes everything. I no longer have to play fake religion. I no longer have to fake that I'm more than I am. I no longer have to search after stupid and weak, vain folly. All right, Jesus. I want to obey from the heart. I no longer want to play act. And you find yourself asking, all right, what do you got for me to do? These are the most beautiful questions in the world. I'm so proud to be standing amongst you. Let's pray.
I don't know what to say. Only this, how did you find me? I was so close to trashing it all. How did you find me? And each of us sitting in this room, we cry out, gosh, I love you. I love you, Jesus. Thank you for loving me. Thank you. In the authority of Christ Jesus, we pray, amen.